Well, my name is Mark Putman. I'm one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. It's great to be in the house of the Lord together with you today. Just a reminder that we are only about two and a half weeks away from hosting the Global Leadership Summit. We've hosted the GLS for some years now. This year, um, it's going to be a little bit different. You can both um, come and in person over in the Fellowship Hall with social distancing and see it in person. Um, the same um, price also allows you to watch it in the comfort of your home or your workplace if you want to as well. But this coming Wednesday, the price is going to go up. So if you've been planning to come but just had not gotten around to registering yet, you'll want to do that before Wednesday and save yourself a few bucks. Um, the Global Leadership Summit takes place on Thursday and Friday, August the 6th and the 7th. Great, great leadership training. And we are all leaders, aren't we? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Would you describe yourself as an optimist? Do you love variety and adventure? Would your friends say that you are fun-loving? If they call you to do something, are you willing to put aside what you are planning to do in the expectation that what you're invited to do might be even more fun-filled, more adventure-filled than what you'd planned to do in the first place? Well, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you might just be a number seven. We are in week seven of our series on the nine different personality types of the Enneagram. And today we are looking at type number seven, which is called the enthusiast. Now, sevens are the most popular of all the nine different types. Sevens have lots and lots of friends, they've never met a stranger. And it's no wonder there's so much fun to be around that everybody wants to be their friend. They love to tell funny jokes and tell funny stories. They're optimistic to a fault. They always see the silver lining in every single dark cloud. Their motto is, don't worry, be happy. And their hero is Peter Pan. They love to try new and things. The newer, the more different, the better. I don't know about you, but I like to go to the same restaurant and I order the same thing off the menu. Because if I don't, I always feel like I'm disappointed. But not number seven. They'll go new places and try new things every single time. In fact, for a seven, variety is the spice of life. Now, when sevens are spiritually healthy and growing, they're not only fun and adventurous, but they are well-grounded and practical and resilient. They understand that happiness and joy is a gift of God's grace. And they have learned to embrace pain and disappointment also as a gift of grace. But when they are unhealthy, they seek to avoid pain at all costs. And in fact, they have the unique ability to reframe their sadness and failure to look at it as if it was a wonderful blessing that things went so badly. Sevens often find it hard to finish things. You see, when they get close to the end of a project, they're already thinking about the next project, and they start to get excited about that one, and they never finish their current project. So it's not unusual for a seven to have a number of different projects all going at the same time that they can never seem to actually complete. They tend to avoid heavy conversations. 
And when things do get to be a little bit too serious, you can count on them to crack a joke, to lighten the mood. They're uncomfortable with making long-term commitments. And more than any other type, they seek instant gratification, which can make them kind of reckless at times. They are also prone to addictions, especially gambling, because they love the adrenaline rush of, and the risk of losing everything or gaining a quick fortune. Pastor Jonathan is the only number seven on our staff. Let's take a look at this brief video that he made for us about how being a seven affects him. Jonathan, another name for the type seven enthusiast is the enthusiastic visionary. How does that fit you? Hmm. Well, I, I love life. I try to live life to the fullest, and I try to do new things. Um, I, I, I'm really ideation, innovation is, is at the core, and I, I, so I like the, the adventure of that, and I love it in ministry, especially, so. What is your deepest fear? I'd say my deepest fear is confinement. The fear of being scared of maybe just growing older and older and not and being more confined. What is your greatest need? Just the social energy. Um, I'm definitely like a great banquet party kind of guy, so I, I love to bring people together and just have fun and experience God in a way that's that maybe they uh, have never experienced communally. So how does a type seven, the enthusiast, impact your relationship with Christ? I know that I need to go and be alone with God. I, that's how I recharge. I need, I, I get it in community, but I know that I need to get away and just be with God because that's, that's really the attachment that I get that, that re, re-energizes me. So I like to be quiet and just listen and, and talk to God, pray and interact. And I do that a lot in the car. I do that a lot in the morning when the house is empty so there's no distractions. So I think that's the way that um, I experience that, that impactful ministry of, of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. great banquet kind of a guy because that's so true. There's always life and energy when, uh, when Jonathan Coleman or Jay Cole, as we like to call him around here, is in the room. Well, if you probe a little bit into a seven's early childhood, you will often find that there was some kind of abandonment back there. Perhaps their parents divorced. Maybe there was a suicide. Or maybe their family moved around from house to house a lot without much notice. And what happens is that the child gets the message that no one is taking care of them, and so they begin to take care of themselves. And they feel like they never have quite enough, that they always need just a little bit more, more ice cream, more alcohol, more 
possessions, more adventures. You see, it's how they deal with their pain. And hence, the sin that seven struggle with the most is gluttony. Now, in the Bible, gluttony refers to an inordinate fondness for something. We often connect gluttony just with overeating, but it's more than just food. Maxie Dunham describes gluttony as misplaced hunger. It's the pursuit of pleasures that never completely satisfy us. Now, we can overindulge in anything, can't we? It might be food, but for some people it's shopping or work or watching soap operas or exercising or video games, social media, gambling, the list goes on. Now, some of those addictions we can keep pretty hidden, can't we, on the down low, but some of them we cannot. They create within us a, a shame, a, a guilt, and most of them interfere with us living the kind of life that we actually want to live. They begin to harm our health, our relationships, our spiritual lives. We use them to medicate our emotional needs. It appears to be self-destructive behavior, but it's our way at self-help. We use these things to deal with stress, fear, depression, boredom, poor self-esteem, fatigue, even frustration. Or they become a replacement for something that we're lacking in our lives, like love or approval or significance. And the ironic thing is that most of these things are, are really good things. Food, drink, sex, they're all wonderful gifts of God when we use them in the way that God gave them for us to use. But it's when we misuse them that they can become addictive. I don't think that there's anyone in the Bible who wrestled with gluttony more than King Solomon did. His father, as you remember, King David, spent most of his reign out fighting wars with neighboring kingdoms to expand the boundaries of Israel. And so it seems like that left him precious little time to be at home with his family, being a parent. And so his family was quite a mess, wasn't it, if you read Scripture? His son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar, and her brother, Absalom, plots and murders Amnon. And then Absalom conspires against his father David, and civil war breaks out, but Absalom is killed in his attempt to overthrow the kingdom. But then Adonijah, David's second son, tries to usurp the throne, and he is caught and executed. Rape, murder, rebellion, adultery. And you thought your family had issues? <laughs> You're doing pretty good. Well, finally, the succession question to who's going to succeed David is resolved, and Solomon ascends the throne. And, of course, he starts off well. God speaks to him and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon asks only for wisdom and to be a good leader. The writer of 1 Kings, describes the state of the nation this way. 
the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. Good times in the kingdom. You see, Israel was at her zenith, the peak of her strength. Wealth and power were in abundance. And in chapter 10, the Bible records that under Solomon's leadership, the king made silver as common as stone. You see, he began these massive building projects, the temple, the palaces, the wall around Jerusalem. He built entire cities. He built stables for his horses. He built terraces. But the Bible also records the dark side of Solomon's leadership. He used forced labor to build all of these projects. And in chapter 11, we find an even darker side of Solomon. We're told he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. His insatiable need for more ruins his spiritual life. Verse 9 says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. What happened? Solomon seemed to have it all, but it wasn't enough. He had to have more. Solomon lived most of his life seeking the next thing that would bring him happiness and pleasure. You can hear it from his own mouth. Listen to these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Traditionally, this book of the Bible has been ascribed to Solomon. And it is thought to be the expression of the thinking from his later years in life. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had a toil to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So Solomon found his pursuit of more to be just an illusion. It couldn't satisfy. It never has, and it never will. But contrast Solomon's life with that of the Apostle Paul. Here is what Paul wrote in Philippians 4. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Quite a contrast between these two men, isn't it? Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians most likely from a prison in Rome. Everything, including his freedom, had been taken away from him. And yet, as you read through the book of Philippians, you see, you feel a man who is happy. Six times in this short little letter, Paul uses the word rejoice. In fact, the whole tone of the letter is nothing but joy. So how, how did he do it? Why did he feel that way? How did Paul learn to be content whatever his circumstances? What is the secret that Paul seems to have learned? And as I read and reread this passage, it became clear to me it seems to be totally independent of his external circumstances and totally dependent on God. You see, Paul has learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, hungry or well-fed, living in plenty or in want, flying first class or taking a Greyhound bus, staying in a five-star motel hotel or in Motel 6, eating at the finest restaurant or at White Castle. Paul says he's experienced it all, and he learned how to be content in ev any and every situation. So what does it mean exactly to be content? What is contentment? Well, it's a satisfied heart. It's not achieved by getting everything we want, but by training the heart to experience full joy and peace even when we don't have what we want. So how did Paul train himself to be this way? There are a few things I want to share today. First of all, he stayed focused on the positive, and he learned how to ignore his circumstances. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that his imprisonment had actually served to advance the gospel. He was able to see the good things coming out of his very less than ideal circumstances. And we need to learn how to do the same thing. And we do that by thanking God for every evidence of God's care, both the big things 
and the little things. And we need to be careful about what negative stuff we allow to go into our minds. Philippians 4, 8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Paul stayed focused. Secondly, Paul trained himself to be contented by remembering that his strength was in Christ. Verse 13 says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Do you know what the context of that verse is? Let me share with you. Paul had been in Philippi about 10 years earlier before writing the book of Philippians. Acts chapter 16 records the story. Paul shows up and he begins to talk about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And there is this woman who hears it and it opens up her heart. She opens herself up to the gospel and she becomes a Jesus follower right then and there. Her name is Lydia and she is a very successful businesswoman. Her whole house becomes a follower. But one day, Paul is heading for a prayer meeting, and he runs into another woman, and she has an evil spirit inside of her. And Paul sees her and sets her free, and it gets him and his companion, Silas, in a lot of trouble. They were beaten up, and they were put in chains. And at midnight, they're doing the most amazing thing. They are sitting in jail and they are praying, and they are singing psalms of praise to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably would have been complaining in that jail. I would have been whining, woe is me. God, look what I do for you, and this is what happens? Why did you let this happen, God? But that's not Paul and Silas. They stayed focused on God and God's great promises rather than the negative and horrible situation in which they found themselves. And you see, because of that, it enabled them to praise rather than complain. And do you know what happened? An earthquake shook the foundations of that prison and the prison doors opened and it enabled them to share the good news of the gospel with the jailer. And then he and his whole family became followers of Jesus Christ and they took Paul and Silas to their home and bandaged their wounds that they had gotten from the beating. But you see, they could only do that because God's strength was in them. I know that Paul would say, yeah, that wasn't our strength at all. That was the strength of Christ. That was so far beyond us. We were only able to do that because of the presence of Christ with us in that jail cell. My friend, the presence of Christ is with you when you go through your next round of chemo. The presence of Christ is with you as you downsize and have to cut back because you're going from two incomes just to one in your family. The presence of Christ is with you as you see that significant relationship in your life heading south. The presence of Christ is with you as you watch your loved one slowly slip away because of dementia. 
Paul could only be fully alive to God and other people, to have full joy and deep peace because of the strength of Christ in his life. It is the key. It is the secret to a contented life. It's the presence and the power of Christ. He's with you. You're never alone. And Paul learned that. And he learned that he could do everything through Christ who gave him strength. Lastly, Paul trained himself to find contentment in his circumstances by trusting. In verse 10, Paul is writing a thank you note for a gift that the Philippians had sent to him. You see, it seems that the church in Philippi had taken up this love offering, and they personally sent it to Paul in Rome through this man named Epaphroditus. Can you imagine that? You're sitting in a jail cell, and the door opens up, and in walks this guy carrying a bag full of money for you. Now, Epaphroditus was from the congregation in Philippi, and he had come in person over a journey that was not an easy trip, but he had come to support Paul and to serve Paul to provide Paul with friendship and companionship and to help him financially. Now, the Philippian church was not a wealthy church. In fact, there are a lot of hints in the book that they were pretty poor. But you see, they wanted to help their friend who was in a time of need. And so they gave money that they couldn't afford to give. And Paul could never, ever, afford to pay them back. He writes to them and he says, I need you to know something. I'm so grateful that you sent this gift, but I was content before you sent the money, and I'm at peace now because I have learned the secret of being content whatever the circumstances. For some of us here today, that same way of thinking could be a real game changer. Because when you pursue the contented life, what we're really talking about is finding freedom. Because you see, contentment is freedom from having to run from a pain by accumulating more stuff that you don't need, more stuff that you'll probably never even use. And this is absolutely critical for a number seven because their core their core need is to be free, not to be confined. You see, contentment frees you to enjoy the things that you have without thinking that wholeness and joy and peace is just one more purchase away. And sadly, Solomon never learned that. About 25 years ago, I think it was, when Marge and I were really young and <laughs> we were growing in our faith, we began to work our way up toward tithing in order to cultivate a habit of generosity as God calls us to do as followers. I remember that each year we had been challenged by the church that we were a part of at the time. I wasn't in ministry yet back then. Um, and each year we had made a commitment to increase our giving 
from what it started out at, about 2% of our income, to the next year, 3 to the next year, 4 until one year we realized that with every increase in our faithfulness, God had been even more faithful in His generosity to us. Even in the years where our kids were born and we had more mouths to feed, even in the years where Marge started working only part-time and our income was cut, even in those years, we never missed a meal. We never missed a house or a car payment. We always had clothes to wear. We had everything we needed. Even in the years when things looked really tight, God always provided. And so what we discovered was this cycle of giving and receiving Paul says in verse 15, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone, Philippians. God provides for our needs. God takes care of us. God did that for us in our family too many times to mention. We receive from God and then we take what God has given us and we invested in the work of God to push forth the gospel. We give, God receives, and God uses. It's the cycle of giving and receiving. Paul says not very many Christians did this, but the Philippians did. And so Paul writes in verse 19, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. They gave and now God will take care of their needs. Do you believe that? It's about trust, isn't it? It's what God has asked for since he created the planet. God says, I want you to trust me. Can you trust that I will meet your needs? Can you trust that I will take care of you? Nothing will bring healing to a seven more than hearing and incorporating those words, the word, trust. And when a seven believes that word, they will begin to grow in their life in Christ. They will find the strength to reject the idea that more is better. In fact, they'll probably discover that less is better. They will be able to spend time reflecting on the pain of their past and to answer the question, who hurt me? When was it that I felt abandoned? And then they'll be able to go and do the hard work of forgiveness if that's necessary. Sevens will find the strength to stop running away from pain and disappointment and failure. They will learn to sit with those negative feelings and realize that it's as much a part of life as the many good times are. So to you sevens, what would it change in your life if you were able to let go of your need for more and just surrender to Christ? And are you ready to do that? Let's pray together. Holy Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness, grace, and mercy. We thank you for creating each and every one of us so uniquely and so different and yet all so interdependent on each other 
because it is together, Lord, with all of our personalities, all of our gifts, all of our graces that we make up the body of Jesus Christ so that the world sees Christ alive and at work in the world. Lord, we pray that you would help each and every one of us, no matter our personality type, to grow in grace so that we might be the healthiest versions of ourselves and to serve you more fruitfully the way you created us to do. Lord, help us to, to surrender everything to you, to know that our strength comes from you, to find